The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Strategies to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Every entrepreneur at some point or another thinks about ways they can grow their company. And certainly you must have thought of all the different ways you think of, but here's another way to grow your business, whether you're small, medium, or large. And I mean large, large, large. They all use this very high level technique and they use the deal business to grow their business. And deals can be a lot of different things and here to share uh, different strategies and different ways to use the deal business to grow your company. Corey Kupfer, he's a New York-based attorney uh, that specializes in uh, mergers and acquisition work. Uh, Corey, welcome to the show. Joel, it's, uh, it's so great to be with you and your audience, and I, I look forward to talking to people about uh, growing their businesses inorganically. In well, let's, uh, let's talk about that. So first, um, you already used a word that, uh, you know, I think is kind of a funny word, uh, inorganic. That sounds like that's some kind of a chemistry assignment <laughs> or something, uh, which is uh, the furthest thing from the truth, because if it was chemistry, uh, I wouldn't be in this thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. <laughs> So, uh, so what is organic? What is inorganic? Yeah, so, so organic growth is the thing that every business focuses on or else they wouldn't be in business, which is, of course, uh, sales, marketing, providing a great service or product and just growing through, you know, natural sort of natural means. The concept of inorganic growth means basically doing some sort of deal, something that's not in the ordinary course of your business in terms of getting more clients and providing your services that will help you grow. And, you know, the one that a lot of people automatically think about is mergers and acquisitions, and that's certainly a huge one. Um, and the problem is a lot of people have a misconception of what it takes to do that, and they don't understand that there are all types of other deals that you can do, whether you're a bigger company, a smaller company, whether you have capital, you don't have capital. There's a lot of different things, whether it's joint ventures, strategic alliances, licensing deals. There's all kinds of ways you can grow your business through deals. So let's talk about what some of the ways are, because the uh, there are there are lots of categories. Are there a couple of big categories so we can kind of put them in a big bucket? Yeah. So I mean, M and A, right? Mergers and acquisitions. That's where that's where a company, one company, either acquires or merges with another company. There are different structures within that, but fundamentally, what you're doing is you're one one company is absorbing another company, or two companies are coming together. That's one. Uh, bucket. Um, then there's a variation of that, which I want to say, because it's sort of a variation that's available for small companies and, and medium-sized companies. And I know a lot of companies have grown this way. 
which is some people call it an, you know, an aqua hire, which is basically positioned as it's, if it's an acquisition. Out to the marketplace, you say, I acquired this company, but really what you've done is hire a person or a team that formerly had their own company, and uh, you know, you're just bringing them in to, to increase capacity. And the difference on that one is that often there isn't money up front. It really, you're just paying with salary or maybe you're paying a piece of revenue or profits going forward. So there's a variation there. Then well, there's this whole category. In a, business, in a service business, if they're not bringing clients, that's all you're buying is the talent anyway. Well, that's right. That's right. So, so often uh, those are done. And even sometimes when there's a small book of business, so to speak, whether it's a, a professional or whether it's, I, 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 there's somebody I'm familiar with who uh, uh, has done a lot of these deals in the IT industry, right? Where you have small IT companies, they have some clients, but they find out, you know what? I don't really, I really love being an IT guy or woman, but I don't, I, I'm not so good at running the business part or the economy. These, these are great and downed economies, right? Right now we're in a relatively up economy, uh, but you know, in a down economy, suddenly the businesses that are running inefficiently who can sort of make it work when things are good because they, they can get by, but then things get tougher and they realize, Hey, you know, I got to deal with payroll and I got to deal with all this stuff. And I want to, I want to be able to focus on doing what I'm great at. Uh, there are a lot of opportunities to do these uh, aqua hires where you hire somebody and say, hey, listen, we'll give you a piece of the revenue of your clients that you bring in going, you know, going forward and maybe new clients you develop and maybe a salary or some other compensation. Uh, so you're there, you acquire talent, like you said, but you may also acquire some business without any upfront cost. That's pretty, uh, that, that's a pretty significant thing. Is that happening a lot? So again, I see, I see it a lot in down markets, but I do definitely see some of it now. It depends on the industry. So again, you're right. These are mostly service industry deals, right? You're not going to do that with a manufacturing company where there are significant right. assets. Um, but, you know, we see it in wealth management, financial services. We see it in IT. Um, we certainly see it in professional services where accountants, for example, you know, sometimes come in and they're, they're, they're not going to get a big check, you know, up front. Uh, so, you know, we see it in some of those kind of businesses, even, even in, in better economies. And you called that uh, acquire for hire? Yeah. Uh, so some people call it a, a, an aqua hire. It's an acquisition hire, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, but really, really the truth is when you look at it from a legal or, you know, accounting or structural point of view, it's just, you're just hiring people. The, 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 the aqua part is, is really that a lot of times you'll get an announcement when they send it up to the market and say, Hey, I acquired Joel's, you know, company we've, or we've merged Joel's company in, but really Actually, kinda, it, bolster, it bolsters both sides. It makes exactly. uh, the look like a big shot and it makes the guy being acquired uh, look like he just got a pile of cash. Well, well, that's right. It makes, and, and it makes everybody look good. That's right. And a lot of times behind the scenes, all I've done is given you an employment contract, maybe with some sort of incentives, but you know, but I've acquired you, but you know, but, but I am getting your clients and maybe even I'm, you know, maybe I'm acquiring your name or telephone numbers as well. And quote unquote, but there's no real money changing hands for that. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. that's the kind of deal that's especially smaller and medium sized companies can look to do if they don't have capital to do, to do real. You, know, right, so you got, uh, you got real scale uh, M and a, you got this aqua hire. What else you got? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bundle another category called like joint ventures or strategic alliances. You know, these are deals where you come together usually on a contractual basis. So you're not buying or selling either side, but there's some sort of contractual arrangement to do something together. 
right? You can have a, a joint venture where you're, where you're uh, actually launching a business line with someone else that's done contractually. You can have a, uh, like a joint marketing agreement. Uh, some of these affiliate agreements for online companies are uh, sort of in this category. Uh, you know, any kind of strategic deal where there's a relationship between you and another company that is either vertically or horizontally, you know, in your market, where it makes sense for both sides, uh, and uh, you know, uh, and there's some sort of strategic value to both partners. That's you know, those are great deals and and unbelievably underutilized, Joel. Unbelievably underutilized. Now, are those um, are those kinds of deals, those joint venture type deals, are they generally project based? Or they have a fixed life. Uh, they're, they're not. They're not forever, like a like a merger or acquisition. Yeah. So a lot of them are project based, uh, and and certainly the contractual joint ventures are often project based. A lot of times, when you if you're going to do a joint venture that's more long term, you'll actually set up a third company. So it won't be a contractual joint venture. It will literally be. You know, it's it's a joint venture in that Joel's company and Corey's company are coming together, but we're going to create a third company which will co-own and that'll be a joint venture entity. That's so, more that, common so I, for something ongoing. I think about that as a partnership of two companies. That's, that's, that's exactly, yeah. A partnership of two companies is different than a partnership of two people. That, th that's right. When, you know, so, uh, I mean, for us lawyers, a lot of times we'll consider the, that a, 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 like that's a joint venture entity, which is the same thing you're saying. It's just another phrase for it versus a contractual joint venture where you don't have any new entity. It's just a contract between my company and your company. And we're going to agree to do something together. And like you said, that contractual joint venture is much more often for a temporary or specific project based, uh, arrangement. Okay. And uh, so that's three. Any any other any other buckets? I would say the uh, another bucket is uh, is licensing. Um, you know, you'd be uh, so obviously. I think people think about this in terms of when people have intellectual property like patents, um, where they they may license you know their, their their patent. But there are other types of licensing deals. I mean, you'd be surprised at some of the people out there. Um, you know, we have some. Uh, we have people in common in the professional speaking industry as members of the National Speakers Association. And there are some people in that and other people I know who are speakers who actually, you think they're making most of their money through speaking, but really they have curriculum and content that they license to corporations and they may, they may package it with a train the trainer kind of thing where they're coming in and training internal people on how to deliver that content, or they may uh, you know, do it in other ways, or they may license it through an online portal where uh, you know, the company's uh, employees have access to the training and, uh, and they're making most of their money, not through the speaking, but through, the, through, through licensing deals. Interesting. Well, I'll tell you, I, I recently have uh, really become aware of the value of all of this intellectual property, the licensing. I mean, I'm in the middle of a licensing deal myself right now. You know, we, my office uh, wrote some material and we're gonna uh, you know, license the use of that material to help speed up some of our other processes to people who wanna use it. Uh, so that speeds things up. Uh, the logos, the looks, the branding, I mean, all this stuff. Uh, smaller companies don't do a great job of protecting this sort of thing, but they need to because it really is valuable. It really is valuable. And if you don't protect it, you, know, you risk losing it. And then you put a lot of energy into something that turns out to be nothing. So it's really important to, to do that.
It's, it's no question. I mean, that's you're right. That's the first step. I mean, uh, so you know, there's copyrights, there's trademarks, and there's patents. Uh, you know, I don't. The purpose of the show is not to go into the details of the differences, but there are differences. You know, copyrights are often things you can figure out on your own. Trademarks and patents, you should be going to an attorney uh, for. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, you want to look at at filing and protecting that. And then, you know, building a business model around how you license it. And the, listen, the great thing about licensing is, you know, especially when you're talking about service businesses, people who are, who are thought leaders, professionals, consultants, those types of folks, one of the challenges those businesses have is that they are often selling their time in one way or another, whether it's an hourly rate, a project fee or whatever, but a lot of their income is based upon their personal services in one way or another. And licensing is a great way to get, to get out of that, to create, yeah. you know, the, the holy grail of, of passive income. Uh, and so it's something that's uh, also significantly underutilized uh, by a lot of people. You know, uh, thinking about these four buckets, uh, just my own experience, uh, granted, I think more about the uh, mergers and acquisitions side because that's, uh, you know, a very common way for companies to grow. Uh, there's a couple things that I want to talk about this. Uh, number one, uh, you know, you call it M&A, but uh, I'm actually a principal who does these deals. I acquire things. Uh, you know, I don't act as anybody's uh, counsel or advisor. I mean, I, I actually uh, do this. And one thing that I know to be true is that there is no such thing as a merger. There are only acquisitions. <laughs> that is that is almost a hundred percent true. I, I I have in my thirty some odd career as a lawyer, I actually have done a handful of true mergers. Uh, in terms of, but but let's make a distinction. In terms of legal structure, right? I have done true mergers. Most legal most deals are legally structured as an acquisition, but even in the merger deals that are legally structured as a merger, I think your point. Is probably that there is a dominant company and a company that is that is being folded in, and that's, hey, look, and that's at, and at that's, the end of the day, somebody has to be in charge, right? Somebody has to be responsible. Somebody has to uh, be the place where the buck stops. And so, uh, you know, it's friendly and everything to think about mergers, but at the end of the day, uh, somebody's in charge. So, just just a little commentary for whatever that's worth. No question. And listen, we've had some examples throughout history with bigger companies that you've, you can read about publicly where they tried the co-CEO model for a period yeah. of time and it never, it never works. It never works. You can't run a company by a committee. Yeah. And anybody, anybody who runs uh, anything knows that uh, you know, pretty fast. Absolutely. So let's talk about where the money comes from to do these deals because I've, yeah. uh, I've got a different model. I'll bring that up in a minute. So where are companies getting the money to buy these uh, to, to buy, uh, they want to acquire whatever kind of a company. Uh, let's say they're a mid-range company, you know, a couple hundred million dollar company that want to go buy something for 20, 30, 50 million. Where's the money coming from? Sure. And by the way, that, that, that raises it. We were like, you know, we didn't even talk about the bucket of financing deals, which is a, which is, you know, investment and financing deals was a lot of what you do, which is actually its own bucket as well. Right. But in terms of financing M and A and deals, so it, it really depends on what level you're at. I mean, uh, bigger companies, listen, there's a lot of money out there. Investment banking, private equity firms, uh, angel investors, all, all up and down the line where, you know, when a, when a, we're in a, a good economy and there's a lot of money out there right now to be deployed. So on the bigger side, I mean, um, there are definitely uh, uh, VC firms that are, that are investing, and, and I, I do a talk every year, uh, which I just did a couple of weeks ago for the Bar Association, and I talk it's basically to my attorney colleagues, try to explain to them that 
they need to understand the landscape to be able to add value to their clients. Because if you're just the kind of attorney that documents a deal, uh, especially your small clients, they're going to come to you and they're going to ask you the question, hey, I, I want to raise money. How do I do it? And you better know the difference between how you do a deal with a VC, how you do a deal with friends and family, and how you do a deal with, with, uh, with angel investors. And what and sort of what types of angel investors they are. So, but but the interesting jo thing, Joel, is right now there's money in all of those sources because we're in, we're in a good stretch, and 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 they're looking to de deploy it. So on the big M and A deals, there are de definitely um, uh, VC funders. And and listen, if you have a great balance sheet, you know you can even get bank bank banks will actually you know give you some money now. Uh, but. In terms of the smaller companies or the companies that aren't going to be on the radar for VCs or, you know, or, 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 and they're not bankable at that level, um, you got angels, you got friends and family. And then here's the, here's the one that I want to lay out that we mentioned, alluded to a little earlier, which is the underutilized one, which are strategic partners, right? Too many people go out and try to figure out how to fund their deals through just finance people. And by the way, that, those are great. But there are strategic players in there that have other interests where you can potentially get cheaper money. And that's an underutilized way of doing things. Let's, let's examine that because uh, nobody understands. This is, this is way, un way under understood. It's just people don't get this. So there are two big sources of money. There are people who have a financial interest and people that have a strategic interest. Uh, the strategic people also have a financial interest, by the way, but the financial interest may not be exactly in the deal they're working on. It may be that the deal they're working on is a lever for the rest of their company. So that's why it's strategic for them is they've got a bigger interest. So they may give a better sweetheart deal to you because they want the company than, uh, than something else. And I've been, I've been personally involved in those kind of deals. Any, what's your experience? Yeah, let me give let me give an example. I think an example would be would be great. This is an example with one of my clients. So so I have a client that is a doctor's group. Uh, they're at a particular specialty and they have practices, but uh, they're unlike a lot of doctors. They're very entrepreneurial as well. And they uh, started getting requested to speak from pharmaceutical companies, others, etc. And they realized that there's a business in this like they could just get paid to do a gig or they can put together a company that puts together seminars for these um, uh, pharmaceutical companies. So what's happened is, first of all, they have a, they have a built-in client, pharmaceutical companies wanna fund this, so that, that's one deal. But then on top of it, they didn't wanna handle all the logistics of, you know, you put a conference together, you need to deal with hotel rooms and booking rooms and build, setting the stage and AV and whatever, and doctor, they don't wanna do that, right? So they contracted initially with a company out of the UK that is in that business, okay? Now, they built this thing up very nicely, and at some point they wanted to take some money off the table. So we had a conversation. They could go to a financial investor, right? Look for a VC money, look for, you know, other kind of money. But what we said was, wait a second, this logistics company that you work with, okay, has a real interest in you being successful. They know your business. You know them. You've been working with them. And by the way, on the leverage side, there are other logistics companies out there and the, and the $2 million a year they're making off of you, if you went elsewhere, they would lose that. So not only do they understand the business and know there's an upside in investing just as a pure investment to get a return, but they also know there's a downside if they say no to the investment opportunity because you can take the core business that they're doing, which is producing a couple of million dollars a year for them, elsewhere.
So that was, and that we, we ended up getting that deal done. That's, that's an example of a strategic investment. That's a lot of leverage. So what, uh, how'd you price that deal? Was it like 10 times revenue or how, how did you guys end up doing it? Well, so what we ended up doing is they, I mean, and again, I want to, I want to be, I always have the challenges of attorney of, you know, maintaining uh, attorney client privilege and confidentiality. And this, this is, is not a This is just between you and me. So just yeah. <laughs> kind of here, just go and tell us. So, so in general, this is a private company deal. So I'm going to speak generally. In general, uh, they bought in initially 25% of the company, right? We got, we got the, we, we, we got that we had gotten the, the company valued on a straight valuation purpose, but let me just say they paid a premium on top of that because of the strategic value and leverage that we had. And that's always what happens in a strategic deal. There's always a premium and, and those premiums can be very, very hefty. That's so right. That, and that, and, the, and that premium can be the, the amount they invest at a high evaluation or the premium could be in some, because there's an ongoing strategic relationship, right? They, there may be some other value, whether it's in terms of discounted services back and forth or inflated, you know, or, or, or you know, in other words, there's a, there's a number of ways to structure it in addition to the upfront capital. In this case, they got a higher amount upfront, but because there's an ongoing strategic uh, relationship, there are so many levers you can play with in terms of how you make the deal work. Yeah. You know, a, a deal like that makes me a little nervous just because uh, when you have services involved, if you, if you overprice the services, uh, you know, there are ways they're going to get their money back. So you know, they're by cutting corners. So you have to, there, I'm sure there are things that you thought about in that, but uh, absolutely. You know, guys, this is really, this is the inside track on how the deal business works. That when you start talking about how all this happens, this really is the inside and, and, and the way you're going to profit from the inside, which is what our whole thing here is about. How do you profit from the inside? The, the insights that a guy like Corey has about putting these kinds of deals together. I mean, I've put together uh, as a principal, probably close to 40 of these types of deals. A couple of them have been right up the alley that you're describing, Corey, just exactly like this. And, and I've been around the block a handful of times. Um, let me ask you something for, for people. I'm, I've got my own answer and it's kind of rhetorical, but you, you answer it for the audience. Uh, when do you call the attorney? Let's say you don't have general counsel on staff. At what point in time, uh, because uh, I'm not a big fan of attorneys. You know, you're, you're a friend of mine. I like you. I think you, you have a certain attitude about attorneys. And, and I've, got a, I've got a bunch of attorneys that I give a lot of work to. Uh, and, and I kind of work with them in a certain way. But a lot of attorneys uh, muck up the, the formula. And, and that's something I always be concerned about. So at what point in time do you call the attorney how does somebody know that they're dealing with the kind of attorney that's not going to muck up the waters and make a big mess uh, and, and screw up the deal? I mean, give us a little counsel on this. I mean, I've got my own opinion, but let's hear what you have to say. Sure, Joel. Uh, so listen, I mean, it's interesting because when business people raise this issue with attorneys, a lot of them get defensive. Uh, and and, and I, I not only don't I, I actually agree with it. And, it. and frankly, it's been a competitive advantage for me for over 30 years now because of the way I approach things. And let me give some, let, let me sort of go back and give the listeners some background on why these issues come up so you can better understand it and then make your, the right decision on, on who you should work with and when you should get them involved. You know, I, 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 Joel and I have joked about this in the past. You know, when you're in law school as an attorney, you do not read any case about anything that went well because there are no cases in court on anything that went well, right? So all the deals that went well, all the risks that business people took and it paid off, those are not, you don't hear about any of those. All you hear about is everything that went wrong. 
So lawyers are just, just, it's drilled into them. Risk, risk, risk. You got to mitigate risk. Look at all these bad things that can happen. And listen, don't get me wrong. Understanding risk, trying to envision risk, mitigating risk is all an important part about what an attorney does. But the difference is, unfortunately, some attorneys only focus on that and they don't balance it against the upside business opportunity. They don't understand as I do. Listen, I've been an entrepreneur since I'm 15. I was running a business with employees when I was 15. So I'm an entrepreneur who happens to be an attorney. Um, they don't realize that you cannot be successful in business without taking risk, right? You, you just can't be. You can't grow. You can't be successful in anything. In anything. So you need to balance. Yes, risk is a factor. You want to take into account, but you have to balance it against the opportunity. And then the other thing, unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues don't realize is that this is the thing, and those of us who do deals, I know you know this, Joel, anybody who does deals, whether it's a principal, whether it's a real deal lawyer or investment banker, whatever it is, understands that there's a rhythm and a pace to a deal. And if you try to artificially slow that down, or if an attorney artificially slows that down, then it could be death for the deal. And by the way, if you artificially try to force the pace too quickly, that's also a problem. But deals have rhythms, and those of us who are in it sort of know how to play that. So that's the thing that a lot of attorneys aren't great at. So the thing, the thing that um, has been great for me is that having an entrepreneurial mindset, I, I understand that my job is not to eliminate all risk for my client because number one, it's impossible. Number two, they wouldn't be able to do any, I mean, there's a risk in every deal you do. I don't care what it is, nothing's a guarantee. So on the risk side, my, my, my goal and any good attorney's goal is to make the business guys, gals, aware of what the risks are. So they're making knowing business decisions. They're taking knowing risks. They're not blindsided, but it's not to eliminate the risk. It has to, and it's to make sure that the opportunity is there. It's to move the deal along and try to think like a business person as well. Although ultimately, obviously the business people make the decisions. So if you have an attorney like that, like, like, like the way myself and the, and the people who work for me work, you want to get them involved earlier because uh, so, for example, you know, you, you do the initial negotiations on the deal and what's going to happen next is you're going to get a term sheet or a letter of intent or a memorandum of understanding. It's all the same thing, different names for it, which is going to lay out what people think of as the business terms of the deal. But the problem is a lot, if you, a lot of people don't get their attorneys involved at that point because, frankly, they're worried about, often rightfully so, they're mucking up the deal. And then what happens is there's a tax structuring issue in it because the business people didn't think about it or there's some other issue or there's something missing right, that they didn't think about, that now it makes it look like you're retrading the deal if, if, if you do it after the term sheet LOI. So if you have an attorney that understands that, you want to get them involved before the LOI stage. If you have an attorney that's just going to blind document deals and doesn't understand this stuff, you probably want to wait until later. You know, listen, uh, there, there's a handful of things. Number one, if you're the selling company, uh, you need to start planning the sale a couple of years in advance. Absolutely. At least, at least two or three years because you got to go through a couple of tax cycles uh, to clean up your books because you probably are not doing things in the best, uh, in the best, most sellable way. That's a whole different discussion, but, uh, but that's a big thing. The second thing is you, you got to be talking to your attorney regularly about what it is you're going to do, how you're going to do it. Uh, if you're out there on the buy side, you know, you need some counsel and you just need to be kind of tipped off about what some of the issues are. What are the things though, that I frequently see go wrong? People don't realize that in a uh, buy sell transaction, buying companies, buying real estate, uh, buying, uh, intangible assets, no matter what it is, but there's three parties to every transaction. You got the buyer, you got the seller, and you got the deal. 
Now, the brokers are always advocating for the deal. Everybody thinks they work for the buyer or the seller. They do not. They work for the deal. The attorney, though, works specifically for the side that hired them. That's the great thing about attorneys. You really do know what side they're on. The problem, Corey, that I've seen so often is that they take that advocacy so seriously, which is great. It's great they do that. But sometimes they take it so seriously that they protect the client so much that they make it impossible for the other side to say yes, and they kill the deal. So, you know, if you're, if you're too over, overwhelmed with, you know, the advocacy thing, you, you end up extinguishing the opportunity. How do, you, how do you balance that? I mean, how do you find something that balances that situation? It, it, it's a great question, Joel, because it, it comes up all the time. And, and here's the thing. Listen, as lawyers, we're ethically obligated to zealously represent our clients. That's what the ethics rules say. But how do you define that, right? The problem is too many lawyers define it as I need to be zealous on every single point without having any view of the big picture, right? The big picture on zealously representing my client is to get the deals done for them that they want to get done, right? Unless, listen, there are, there are scenarios where not because of overlearning, whatever, where, you know, due diligence comes up and you find out stuff you didn't know, right? And occasionally you find out stuff that's enough that, uh, that the deal shouldn't get done. But that's the business people's decision. Outside of that, right, your advocacy should be to get the deal done because that's what your client wants, and yes, you, you're going to protect them the best way you can. You're going to try to negotiate the, the best terms that, that you can. Um, but, you know, you have to redefine as a lawyer what that zealous representation is towards. It's not towards this one issue. It's towards understanding the entire deal and whether the deal overall is going to be, with, you know, good for the client and then explaining to the client the trade-offs so that they can make business decisions. Look, to me, you know, look, uh, listen, I sell, I raise, raise capital, I do deals. And my goal, my whole goal is to get somebody on the other side of the table to say yes. It's a very mm -hmm. simple goal, very simple. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, you can turn the screw a little harder and they'll still say yes. Sometimes they won't. And you really have to understand the rhythm. And one of the things that, that, that I'm very clear about, uh, and, and working with you might be a little different. Uh, you're not my attorney, uh, although I have several. And, you know, I generally dictate all of the business terms. Uh, the attorney tells me what the legal arrangements need to be, and I dictate the business terms. And, you know, I'll say, look, okay, here's how I want to structure the transaction. Now, you guys write it down the best way it can be written down. And, and I'm very clear about that because I understand the market. I understand what investors are looking at. I understand their alternatives. And attorneys don't always understand those things. That's, it's not their business to understand those things. Uh, they're not in the marketplace. They're not dealing uh, every day in the field with investors, with real estate people. They're... They're uh, concerned with other kinds of issues, which, by the way, are not my concern, which is why I need them. So, you know, that's, that's just it. So I think you have to be very clear that there are business decisions and there are legal decisions. Uh, and you really want to lean on your attorney for uh, legal things. Maybe ask a little bit on the business side, but absolutely you need to give them the legal work to do. And we need to retain responsibility for the business. What do you think? Uh, Joel, I, I, I agree with you 100%. For guys like you, and the way I mean that is that you have to take into account who the client is, right? With, with my sophisticated clients like you, who understand deals, who do deals over and over again, who you know, and really sophisticated guys, right? You're in the business of that, absolutely. And those, and those, those guys and, and women will sometimes call me in advance, bounce some things off of me, right? Just behind the scenes, just the two of us to get some feeling, hey, Corey, I'm thinking about this. 
you know, is it, you know, do you think help me out on tax structuring on that? Or, uh, you know, Hey, you know, what do you think? Whatever. But basically they're going to run the business deal. They're the one, they're going to communicate that the other side, I'm not going to be involved. However, I do have situations. I'll give you an example. I do a lot. Uh, I, we do deals across industries, you name it, but you know, I have this concentration where I do deals in the investment advisory space for people who manage money. Right. And I've done hundreds of deals. Well, it, 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 in situations, which is often where my clients doing their first deal, frankly, unlike you with your deals, in those situations, there may be, there are aspects of deals and, and, and even valuation or structuring or even aspects of the business of the deal that I actually understand better than my client in that case. I, I, and, and I, because you specialize in a niche, I totally get that could happen. Right. Absolutely. So in, so in those situations, and, and the thing with me is I'm going to adjust to my client. If I'm dealing with a guy like you, who I know knows his stuff, has done multiple deals or whatever, I'm basically going to be a resource. If you want to ask me anything, I'll, I'll chime in. Otherwise, you're going to run that show, right? And we'll handle the one. With, yeah. with, 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 with the clients where, you know, they're doing their first deal or two or whatever, and, I, and I've done deal after deal, and I know the industry backwards and forwards, uh, then, you know, I'm probably, I'm going to play a different role, and the client's probably going to want me to play a different role. So when you're, when you're doing your intake and you're talking to a guy for the first time, uh, you know, a, uh, a professional, whoever it is, is going to hire you to uh, potentially represent them. Uh, do you ask them those kinds of questions? Like how sophisticated are you? Have you ever done a deal like this before? How much guidance do you want from me? Yeah. And, you know, and, it, and it's interesting because uh, what I find is with the people who most people who have not done deals before, it's, it's one of the early things they actually volunteer to me. You know, they say, I've never done this before. I don't, I'm not sure what I'm doing. And, and, and so really it's funny because it, it often comes the other way where like my conversation, they raise the issue and I'm the one who's like assuring them by saying, Hey, let, don't worry about it. I've done, uh, you know, a hundred of these deals or 200 of these deals or whatever. You know, we've seen a lot of things I can, I'll help work you through it. And by the way, I also, depending upon the type of deal and what it is, often we'll advise them to, you know, get their other professionals involved too. Like, Hey, we're going to need your accountant for this, right? I don't do that. We're going to need, uh, you know, we're going to need to understand, yeah. you know, they're going to need to put together the numbers, whatever. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, so it's very interesting because it often happens in the reverse with the less sophisticated clients because they're, they're a little fearful or afraid, you know, jumping into their first deal or two and they'll usually express that. And then I'll say, here's where I can help you with that. We can, we can do this. Yeah. Well, that, listen, that, um, that all makes a lot of sense. I mean, so like everything is facts and circumstances driven, I guess the way you deal with your clients depends on the facts and circumstances of that person's background. Uh, it's nothing to be ashamed of that you never done it before. In fact, you'd, you'd be a moron to, uh, you know, to represent that you've done it a hundred times when in fact you haven't, uh, and you really need to rely on people who know what they're doing. Listen, everybody, Joel, you had a first deal at some point, right? Everybody, every sophisticated deal maker, everybody who's done all kinds of deals at some point had their first deal. Yep. So, yep. you know, it's, you can't start, you can't do multiple deals until you do your first one. Yeah. Well, listen, hopefully, um, even before you do your first one, uh, you know, you have studied somebody else's deal. So you kind of understand what the deal points are. You know, I mean, listen, I got my start at Price Waterhouse doing tax returns for a giant real estate syndicator. You know, we were doing tax work for, I was, my job was to convert the books and records of 500 uh, partnerships. And although I hated the tax work, I was reading these partnership agreements. And so by the time I left the firm and went in that business, I had read probably 100 partnership agreements. And, and I had a pretty good sense about, you know, what I liked and what I did not like. 
and I had a pretty good sense about how the fee structures I liked worked, and I had a pretty good sense about how they showed up on the tax return and what happened. Now, I didn't understand all the details of it, uh, you know, and that came slowly over time, but uh, there, there was a learning curve, and, uh, you know, so, but again, you're dealing with people who don't do it for a living. They do it one time as part of a business transaction. Uh, you know, I do these things over and over and over, so I'm, I'm in the deal business. They're just doing a deal. And there is a big difference between a deal and the deal business. No question. And listen, I have some clients who are in the deal, but you know, I, I have some, you know, professional investors who invest regularly and that kind of stuff. But you know, a lot of, because I do other kind of corporate work, you know, we do contractual work, we help set up companies, we do that trade about, you know, we, we, we really, you know, serve as an outside general counsel. I do have a lot of these clients who I represent other, other business things or who get referred to me who, you know, this may be their one and only deal. Uh, you know, or maybe they're going to do a couple of deals over the years, but this is not what they do. And, and, you know, and that raises something that's interesting because on the one hand, I always push people to look at inorganic growth and, and, and stop, you know, and obviously you got to focus on organic growth, but a lot of people bang their heads against the wall. They stall on their organic growth and they just keep going down that tunnel and they don't even lick it, it inorganic. On the flip side, I just want to be real because it takes something to do deals. Right. It takes that study. It takes getting building the right team internally and externally. It takes, you know, and, and I have a lot of people uh, at times, you know, my business clients to say, you know, hey, Corey, you know, I'd love to grow. You know, if you ever see a company that I could acquire, let me know. And I'll say to them, well, are you ready for that? Well, what do you mean? You know, and and I'll you know, the first thing I'll say is, well, you know, what's your value proposition? Why would they join you? And they, and they sort of get stumped a lot of times. You know, they, they, they spend all this time on the USP, you know, you know, selling proposition, the value proposition to the clients. You know, to, they understand that for their clients and customers, but they don't understand if you're looking to acquire a company or do an acquire, even whatever it is, you got to have a why the they would come to you. Why over anybody else? And, you know, I, I have clients say to me, well, you know, we're a great place to work, really nice people. And I would say to them, I would say to them, don't you, do you think there's anybody who doesn't say that? Like, you know, is that what you tell your client? No, you have something, you know. So, and, and then, you know, and then you got to, you have to understand that it does take time and resources. It may not be huge financial resources. It could be big, could be less, but it's certainly going to take time, focus, energy, and expertise that you got to put together and some people, frankly, who think they are going to be acquirers, for example, in that process, learn that they are actually going to be the acquired company. And that's why okay. only certain companies, you know, are able to grow consistently through deals. So, look, I want to talk about two more things before we wind down. Uh, one is uh, I want to talk about buying a company for no money. Yep. And we do this all the time. And you know, and this, this kind of shocks people who are at the low end of the market, but the big end of the market, they wouldn't even think about doing it any other way. They don't go to VCs. They don't go to private equity. They don't go to the bank. They don't, you know where they go? They go right to the stock book. Uh, Google, when Google buys a company for a billion dollars, they don't wire any money. They just open the stock register and they just write some shares of stock. They sign their name and they give it to the company. They say, here's a billion dollars worth of stock. Uh, thank you for your company and they pat them on the head and send them on their way or however it works. So you, you do any of those deals in, in medium-sized companies? Because we do that, our fund does that. Yeah, yeah, so there's a few ways, no question. I mean, listen, so there's, what you're pointing out is that there are different types of currency that you can use to pay for acquisitions, right? People automatically think you have to pay cash and that's an option and sometimes deals are all a partial cash, but you also have this currency called equity 
which is, yeah, and you're right, the big companies, certainly public companies, because it's more easy to value, you know, the company, they, they can use that. But private companies do it as well, right? And and, and there are all times, I mean, you know, I, I don't, we could do a whole hour or hours on, on the different types of equity and, and classes and structures, but there are various types of equity that you could potentially do. If you're a privately held company, keep in mind that the uh, company acquiring, if they're smart, are gonna wanna know how they monetize that equity at some point, because unlike a public company, it's less clear. You know, is your plan to get acquired at some point? They're gonna be able to monetize that way. Are you gonna IPO, go public at some point? Or at least when they retire or die, are you going to have an internal agreement mechanism where you're going to buy out that equity, where they're going to be able to monetize at the point? So you have that. But also, you can do a deal that is cash over time, but is not any cash up front. You can do an earnout deal, right? And an earnout deal basically gives them a percentage on some formula of what they, you know, of what they produce going forward. Now, earnouts are very often used even in cash deals to bridge a valuation difference gap. So in other words, as the seller, if I think, I, think I'm, uh, I have a lot of upside, I don't want to leave on the table, and I think uh, my company's worth more, and as a buyer, you think it's worth less, a lot of times you'll say, okay, don't pay me the $4 million I want, pay me the $3 million you want to pay, but let's do an earnout structure where I can get that million or well back if I prove that I'm going to have the growth. But you could also do a deal that's all earnout. So it is... And by the way, that earnout could be in cash or in equity over time, based upon hitting certain benchmarks. Yeah. So, you know, there are a number of ways to do these deals with currency that is not capital up front. You know, listen, I, I think that the important um, takeaway here is that there are people who know more about this than other people. And you got to make sure that you're sitting with people who know what they're doing uh, if you're contemplating any of these complicated maneuvers. Because these, these types of things are complicated. They have significant impact on your life on your future, and you gotta do it. Let's talk about one last thing. Uh, I'm not really big on uh, doing tax maneuvers for the sake of doing tax maneuvers, but there is uh, something that's recently been released, maybe you're familiar with it. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about it as the greatest tax shelter in American history, it's called the Opportunity Zone Program. It was built into the Trump uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of, uh, 19, uh, of 2017, and, uh, and a lot of us just found out about this in the last couple of months. But if you invest in these uh, distressed areas, and the government has uh, worked with the states and they've identified about 8,700 of these distressed areas, uh, there are tremendous, tremendous tax breaks. I mean, too many to describe right now. But uh, what do you think the impact on a program like this is going to be on access to uh, capital, venture capital, private equity capital, uh, and other types of, uh, of money? What do you think? Well, listen, you know, the one thing that we have seen throughout history is that any time the government gives an incentive, right, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, tax breaks for uh, real estate, you know, in terms of investing in real estate in various places, in this case, it's, it could be real estate or businesses, um, that it has the potential to drive capital into, into those areas. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of areas have been, uh, uh, you know, rehabbed in, in, uh, over the years for other programs. And this program, like you said, is very significant compared to what's been available in the past. So I, I definitely see, now listen, uh, there are a lot of these opportunity zones and there is a question as to where the money is gonna, you know, gonna concentrate. But uh, you know, if you start to understand this stuff and try to figure out and focus where the money's going, uh, which of those opportunity zones uh, the professional investors are, are gonna be looking at, there's a lot of piggyback opportunities there. Cause even if you're not gonna go directly into that, you know what? 
maybe you can buy up some buildings in the area where a lot of this money is coming in, or maybe you can start a business uh, or, or bring uh, you know, a location of your business to a place where there's going to uh, ultimately be more clients. So I think it's going to I think it's going to have a big impact. I think it's going to take a little while because uh, as you know, they're still you know, figuring out the regulations and you know, everybody's going to figure out how, how the landscape works and then you know, some funds have to be put together. But, um, you know, but, but as a general comment, that's another area that I've seen my clients take advantage of. I, I mean, frankly, it's not an area I'm an expert in, but I know people and I refer clients, which is, which is some various areas where there are government incentive and assistance programs, not only in the federal level, but even on the state and local level. And that's an area, I remember a deal I did for a, uh, a printer who was renting many, any people, anybody who knows New York City real estate going back 20 plus years knows that there were a lot of printers down on Varick Street in New York. And uh, that land, interestingly, was owned by Trinity Church. Um, and, uh, and Trinity Church found that there was a lot more. They started converting those to, business, you know, to uh, condos and, and also business uh, stuff, and the printers got pushed out. Well, at that time, I had a client who was really smart. They would, there were a lot of tax incentives in Long Island City, Queens, to be able to buy real estate and, and also for, for hiring, which is some of the kind of stuff that's available in these opportunity zones. Uh, but even more uh, from the tax basis. And they took advantage of that and bought a building in Long Island City and ended up paying less for the building than they were paying in rent and owned an asset that they were able to sell. So that's another area where you can, using Joel's term, profit from the inside if you really understand this stuff. Yeah. Hey, listen, this is, um, there, there's a lot of cool stuff out there, you know, and, and Corey, uh, you know, you take it for granted, you know, that that's part of the deal too, is that, uh, you know, the reason we bring these kind of experts to the table and the reason that I want people to have the inside track is that guys like Corey, uh, you know, and, and listen, my business, I mean, I mean, I'm exposed to a lot of stuff, but uh, you know, Corey, a guy like you brings a lot of value to the audience because you are able to share with them things that they just wouldn't otherwise have access to. And, and, and whether they want to contact you or their own attorney, however they want to do it, um, opening their eyes to these kinds of ideas is very powerful. And I appreciate that you've done that. Happy to do it, Joe. Good. Well, we'll put your contact information, all your stuff on the website uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of you. But uh, listen, this has been really awesome. And I, I thank you for being uh, you know, a friend. Thank you for, uh, for sharing here. And I'll look forward to uh, you know, continuing the conversation, okay? That's uh, great, Joel. I always enjoy our conversations, whether they're on a podcast or over a cigar. And, uh, and I'm you know, happy to bring some value to, you, to your audience. All right. Well, listen, man, thank you very much for, uh, uh, for sharing. And uh, we'll be back in touch. Sounds great. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joe Block. Strategies to give your business the inside track. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.